We are continuing in Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be in verse 38, and we're just going to read 38 to 42. All right, and it reads like this. It says, uh, the heading on most of your Bibles will probably say the sign of Jonah. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, this is Jesus speaking, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. That's a key statement for our text today. The queen of Sheba, or the queen of the south, some of your Bibles may read, will rise up at the, end of, uh, at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to uh, partake in the knowledge that you offer us this morning through your Holy Spirit. It is a privilege to be able to read your word publicly and gather publicly as the church. There are many Christians around the world right now in this time in history in which we live that cannot do what we are doing right now without fear of somebody breaking down the doors and their lives being threatened. And so as we have gathered here in our comfortable seats in our air-conditioned room in America, Lord, would you humble us and help us to realize the privilege it is to be able to be at church today. And um, as we now look at your word, may you impart wisdom and knowledge on your children. May we know you more when we leave here today in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. There was a fellow that was stuck on a rooftop in a flood, and he was praying to God for help. And soon a man in a rowboat came by, and the fellow shouted to the man on the roof, Jump in, I can save you. The stranded fellow shouted back from his rooftop, no, it's okay, I'm praying to God and he's going to save me. So the rowboat went on. And then a man in a motorized boat came by and the fellow in the motorboat shouted, jump in, I can save you. And to this, the stranded man once again said, no thanks, I'm praying to God and he's going to save me. I have faith. So the man in the motorboat went on. Then as the flood continued to grow and increase in its depth. A helicopter came by and a pilot shouted down, grab the rope and I will lift you to safety. To this, the stranded man replied again, no, thank you. I'm praying for God to save me. I have faith. So reluctantly, the helicopter pilot flew away. Soon the water rose above the rooftop and the man drowned. He went to heaven and finally got his chance to discuss this whole situation with God, at which point he exclaimed, I had faith in you, but you didn't save me. You let me drown. I don't understand why. To which God replied, I sent you a rowboat, a motorized boat, and a helicopter. What more did you want? Sometimes, this is obviously a figurative story, but sometimes we do this. How many of you have heard somebody in your life say this? I'll believe if I just get a sign. Anybody heard that? I've heard that many times as a pastor and as a Christian most of my life, sharing the gospel with other people. You know, I would believe if God would just do this. You know, I heard one time there was a story in the Bible of some writing on the wall. If I just saw a hand right on the wall, I'd believe. And it's an understandable thing to suggest that if God would just give us a sign or some sort of miracle or some sort of thing, uh, you know, people will make vows and say, you know, if I, somebody gets a cancer diagnosis and they'll say, if I am healed of this cancer, I'll serve the Lord the rest of my life. I'll, then I'll believe that there's a God. And in a human sense, I, I understand. I get it. Uh, sometimes I wish God would write things on the wall for me. I've had major decisions that I've made in my life where I really wish that some writing would have appeared on the wall. And uh, just so you know, the writing on the wall was not a good thing in the Old Testament. That was for an evil king, and it said, hey, tonight you did. So uh, you may not want writing on the wall. But all of us appreciate a very clear and concise answer from God. And it would be great. I can think of many situations in my life where it would have been really nice to hear a voice from the Lord say, you need to do this. Shane, do this. 
That'd be awesome. I've never experienced that. We are called to live by faith. Hebrews 11.6 says it is impossible, impossible to please God without faith. So faith and believing when we can't see is an essential part of the Christian faith. It's an essential part of following after Jesus. But we make the mistake of sometimes missing the clear signs that God is putting right in front of us. Because oftentimes they just don't look the way that we figure they ought to look. Amen? And so God is speaking to us all the time. And frankly, if you want to hear from God, you have to read this. If you don't know it, you won't hear from God. I heard Costi uh, Hinn, who is a, um, a pastor and a church leader, he is the nephew of Benny Hinn. Many of you know who Benny Hinn is because you've seen him in his white tuxedo, uh, you know, slaying people in the spirit, quotes, that's in quotes for our audio listeners later. And um, I'm not saying that every aspect of Benny Hinn's ministry has been a complete waste. I believe there may have been genuine salvation through his ministry. But Costi is a nephew who was in the midst of all of the shenanigans and saw the, fa the facade and the really the, the business that it had become. And there were reports back in the day, and I, I've heard that Benny Hinn has repented. I don't know where Benny Hinn's heart is at. I pray that it is genuine repentance. But there's been stories of prayer requests flooding in by the thousands, and envelopes are being opened, the checks are pulled out of the envelopes, and the prayer requests are thrown in the trash. And so it had become a business. And Kenneth Copeland and these other mega, um, there's many names I could list that we don't have time for today. These guys who make themselves millionaires through the ministry, you know that the scripture says, woe to those who spread the gospel for selfish gain and ambition. Anytime the Lord says, woe to thee, pay attention. There is grace for those men if they would repent, but if they go to the grave unrepentant of the way they've abused and used people in the name of Jesus, Jesus literally said, many will come to me and say, but Lord, Lord, Look at what we did in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did these things in your name. And you know what the Lord says he'll say? And note that it says many, not some. Many will come to me. And the Lord says, I never knew you. It's a very sobering scripture because it's a reminder for us to realize none of us are above uh, doing things for selfish ambition. But what happens is um, Kosti Hinn, uh, I heard him talking about this, and he, sh he played a clip from a word faith teacher. Now, how many of you, when, can you show me by raising hands, and there's no shame in this. When I say word faith, do you know what I mean when I say a word faith teacher? Okay, so let me clarify, because there's a lot of people that probably don't understand. So word faith is usually something like this. It's a name it and claim it type of theology. If you just declare this truth, it'll, it'll happen in your life. God desires for you to be healthy and wealthy. That's, the, that's the, the word faith movement in a nutshell. God wants you to be rich and, and famous and, and, and good health all the time. Now, how many of you in this room can relate to that? All right, just Joaquin. Okay, cool. So it's the danger of knowing people by name from the pulpit. So here's the problem. All of the Christians in the room are like, that ain't real. That's just not true. My life, in many ways, has been more challenging because I'm a Christian. There's been many things I would have done and cut corners. Have you ever been in Home Depot and seen how much things cost and been like, man, if I didn't love Jesus, I would just put this in my cart and <laughs> that is too much money for a hammer. And now Home Depot has armed security, so be careful. But what happens is, Costi Hinn shows this clip of this pastor in the Word Faith Movement. It's a prosperity, a health and wealth gospel. And he's basically saying, God can speak to you through all these really obscure examples he gives. And never once is the scripture mentioned. And Costi Hinn's just pointing out, if you want to hear from God, read his authoritative and complete and perfect word. Did you know that statistics now show I heard this on a podcast this week, a theology podcast I listened to. It's a group of pastors. Statistics in the evangelical, Western evangelical American church show this. I would hope this isn't the case at Living Truth, but I don't want to assume anything. Out of the 
8%, yes, you heard me correctly, 8% of Christians in America who are considered regular church attenders. So out of American Christians, people in America right now who profess to be Christians, out of that 100% of them, 8% of them attend church regularly. Do you know what the poll is classifying as regular church attendance? Once a month. So if you are in a church building once a month in America, you're classified in this statistic as a regular church attender, okay? Of that 8%, the statistics show that less than 2% read their Bible on a regular basis. That is really bad. And do you know why it's bad? Because we are right now in our culture seeing the natural byproduct of a church in America that is biblically illiterate and has no idea how to stand against the issues of our day from a biblical worldview because they don't even know what a biblical worldview is. They don't know what the Bible says about transgenderism, about homosexuality, about the covenant of marriage, about uh, money management, uh, about all the hot topic issues, about abortion, all the things. They don't know what the Bible teaches about it, or they really only have a very loose surface level understanding of it, so they are faced with the slightest counter argument and they completely crumble because they have no idea how to speak from a biblical perspective. So as we do our study today, this is more of a tangent, and so excuse me, but we have to be in our Bibles. If you want to hear from God, read your Bible. Oftentimes in counseling with people, when I'm mentoring people, and they begin to share with me the troubles that they're going through, the first questions I ask, are you regularly in the scriptures and are you praying about this thing? And oftentimes the answer is, I mean, I guess, kinda, sometimes. And for whatever reason, what happens is prayer and the authoritative word of God become like our last resort, like our last, our last ditch effort when we're really in trouble, then maybe I'll pray. <laughs> prayer should be the first place that we turn in the midst of trials in this life, and we are promised trials. And so we see a group of men who are religious leaders and Pharisees, and we talked about this in Matthew 12 when I taught last time. We had the whole Sabbath uh, situation where the Pharisees are upset because, the, the, do you guys remember the disciples are gathering grain to eat on the Sabbath, and they're walking down the road, and the Pharisees see it, and they make a big stink about it. Jesus says, you guys know nothing, and then he walks in the synagogue and says, now watch this. And he heals the guy with the withered hand. Pretty cool story. If you look back in 12, look at verse 13. After the controversy over the Sabbath, Jesus uh, leaves them with uh, basically telling them, you guys are hypercritical and hypocrites. And you guys have totally misunderstood what the Sabbath is about. And then it says in verse 13 of Matthew 12, then he said to the man, he goes into the synagogue, he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other and what does it say? This is a very um, pinnacle moment, a, a very uh, important moment in Matthew's um, account. This is a big turn of the hearts of the Pharisees towards Jesus. It says, but the Pharisees went out, and this is the first time we see this language about Jesus, and they conspired against him how to kill him. This is the first time we see in the text, in Matthew's account, this growing angst and disdain that the Pharisees have towards Jesus. Before, it's just issues. They have issues with the way Jesus is operating. They're concerned. There's this mounting tension. But in this moment in Matthew, we see a, a huge jump. And all of a sudden, it's gone from some theological differences, some doctrinal differences. They don't like the way he's doing things to let's kill him. If you are ever at a point where you want to kill somebody, that's not a good point to be. These are the religious leaders of the day, by the way, who are conspiring together on how they can kill the Messiah. And so we jump into our text for today, and we see that it says in verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees 
answered him. Jesus has just spoken about fruit and all these things that Pastor Michael went through last week, which we don't need to repeat. And if you weren't here, you can read it for yourself after today. And they ask a question of Jesus and they say, we wish to see a sign from you. And what does Jesus say? I love how Jesus is so bold and blunt. There is a time to be blunt. Some of you are too blunt. That's, that's not great. And some of you are too, too shy. There's got to be a balance. And Jesus is the perfect balance of being blunt when it's needed and being sweet and gentle when it's needed. He's meek and humble, and he's also a lion. And he, he is the perfect, uh, Abraham Lincoln was described as the perfect combination of velvet and steel. He had those moments where he could be soft. And um, I, I always respect this when I see this in other men. They're so gentle and kind with their wife and their children. But you know if you took a swing at them, they'd probably knock you out. Like, that's the type of man I want to be. The, that perfect combination of velvet and steel. And that's what Jesus was. And in this moment, there, let's, let's picture the scene. People are watching. We know this group, this entourage is following Jesus. And he's being challenged publicly. And does Jesus shy away from speaking the truth and going right back at them in the midst of their accusations? Of course not. Jesus fires back and he puts them right in their place because he is God Almighty and he can humble anyone. And he says this. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. You guys want a sign? You guys are evil. You don't see it, do you? And we're going to get into more of what Jesus is saying if you go back a little bit, Jesus also called this group a brood of vipers. You know what a brood of vipers is? I hate snakes. When Indiana Jones says, oh, snakes, why did it have to be snakes? Remember when he gets in the plane? I can't remember which one it is, but he's running. He's like, start the plane, start the plane. And he jumps in. He's like, there's a snake in here. It's like a huge like boa constrictor in the plane. And he's like, oh, it's fine. Calm down. The guy flying the plane. That would have been me. I hate snakes. I think they're disgusting. I will look at them from a distance. Satan is a snake. He literally came in a snake, guys, okay? If you like snakes, you need to repent. They are evil. From the very beginning of the book, they're evil, okay? They're disgusting creatures. My cousin had a snake growing up, and I did hold it. I held it once. It was a little, I don't know, it was a little, like, three-foot thing, and it was like a pet that they had. Not my thing. I like dogs. Um, snakes. No. And so, what was I talking about? Um, so Jesus calls him a brood of vipers. You know what that is? That's a bunch of baby snakes. Ugh. Have you ever seen those videos of people like trying to kill a spider and all the baby spiders that are on the mama's back are like, ah, disgusting. Ima but snakes are so much worse. Like imagine seeing a nest of baby snakes under the mama snake. You know what Jesus is saying to this group of religious leaders? You guys are little baby devils. I mean, talk about an insult to the insults. Like he's saying, you guys think that you're good, but you're a bunch of baby snakes and your father is the devil. And they knew what Jesus was saying because they weren't exactly happy after he said that. And so he calls them an evil and adulterous generation. And he says, you will not get a sign, but, or except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. So what does that mean? Because you read this at face value and you're like, what? The Jonah? Why is he bringing up Jonah? Well, the Bible has a way of usually working itself out when you're a little confused. Just keep reading. And so it says in verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, there's that title again that we've been seeing all throughout this book, the Son of Man, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus has just prophesied of his death, burial, and resurrection. Pretty cool. Pretty powerful. Because Jesus is saying in, poetic way, in a poetic way to the religious leaders, I'm, you guys want a sign? I'll give you a sign. In a short time, you guys are going to kill me, and I'm going to rise from the dead. Now, imagine being a religious leader who knows that you've just asked the question with sideways motives, right? You don't care about seeing a sign. They're looking for another way to accuse Jesus. They're hoping that he does something that they can find a way to then use it against him. Jesus sees right through them. There are no games that you can play with God. 
He sees right to your heart. And some of us try to play games with God. And we come into church and we pretend we got it all together and we know all the right answers to the questions. And if your heart is far from your Lord, you're not fooling him. And he, he's not interested. This is the issue with the Pharisees. They knew the scripture, but there was this thing between the mind and the heart that created a divide, and it's called pride. And I said last time I taught that you have to be careful because there is a danger in acquiring so much head knowledge, but if that head knowledge does not yield heart transformation, it just becomes head knowledge for the sake of head knowledge. And what it does is it actually bears the fruit of pride. Because now you know the scriptures, but you don't know the author. And so I can know a lot about the things of God and not know God. I've known people like this in my life who know a lot about Christianity. But the head knowledge is not what yields salvation. Now, do I believe that you should stay baby in your Christian walk and never mature in your faith? Absolutely not. We're called to graduate from surface level teaching and the, the, the basics of Christianity to a deeper understanding of who God is in a better rounded theology. That should be a desire you have as a student of the Bible and as somebody seeking after Jesus. You should want to refine your theology and have a better understanding of who God is. And one way you can do that is by being here today in church and hearing the word of God taught. But... We have to be careful that we don't just sit in a seat, absorb knowledge, and then it doesn't change our life. Because it can happen, and I've watched it happen. And so for all of us, myself included this morning, as we continue to dive into this text, may we not be like the Pharisees who knew, but they didn't know. You understand? Amen? And so they ask for a sign, and Jesus refers to Jonah. Now, Jesus and Jonah... There are some parallels between these passages. In fact, let's turn to the book of Jonah for a moment. If you go, uh, not a huge flip in your Bible, because Jonah is in your, the very latter half of your Old Testament. So turn to the book of Jonah. It's a very small book, so you can pass it. Look for Obadiah, Amos, those small prophets in there. Um, Micah is right after Jonah. You can also use that thing in the front of your Bible, uh, the table of contents. It's very helpful for those small books. There's no shame in that the book of Jonah, and I want to bring our attention maybe for a moment to, um, well, let me give you a little bit of a flyover. So how many of you would say, by show of hands, you're super familiar with the story of Jonah? Like, you know, you could probably recite it by heart. Okay, cool. So let me give you kind of a flyover for those of you who are less familiar, and that's totally okay. Uh, Jonah is a prophet of God. Prophets in the Old Testament were men who received a word, and they were instructed by God, um, usually by an audible voice, to when we don't have our Bible yet. So bear in mind, we have some Old Testament scriptures at this point, and we have the Torah, but we don't necessarily have, uh, we don't even have the complete Torah yet as far as I understand. And so we have a point in time where God is predominantly speaking to his people through prophets. And so Jonah is a prophet. Jonah wasn't a very good prophet either. God tells him to go to Nineveh. And Nineveh is a city that was known for being notoriously wicked. Now, if you've ever seen VeggieTales, you know that they were fish slappers, uh, this was uh, the way that VeggieTales and Big Idea Productions decided to portray them. So they're like little French peas. These are like a normal character in the VeggieTales series. And they're slapping each other with fish. So like it cuts to the Ninevites and they're like, oh, we leave. You know, and you're like, what is happening? Uh, but as a kid, it's great. Uh, because they're probably not going to show people like being murdered in the streets in VeggieTales. So, but the Ninevites were notoriously wicked and evil and actually really disgusting people. They were, the Assyrian armies and the Assyrians from Nineveh were known for being wicked, brutal people. Like the, the Assyrians wreaked havoc on the nation of Israel on a couple of occasions where God used the Assyrians to bring judgment on the nation. And the Assyrians were the, the army, like if you got captured by the Assyrian army, you would rather die than be taken captive by the Assyrians. And so we have to understand in context, Jonah probably, I think a good parallel example for us to maybe make it more relatable would be, this is like how a Jewish person would feel towards Nazis in Germany. That level of, of angst and, and disdain for a group of people who did such terrible things and carried out just atrocious things. And the, the people of Nineveh, 
more than likely, Jonah has probably lost loved ones at the hand of the Assyrians. And so now God is telling him, talk about the gospel. Go and take my message of, and my warning that these people need to repent to your, one of your greatest enemies. And you know what Jonah says? Okay, I'll be gracious. No. Jonah goes the complete opposite direction. So quick flyover. Jonah gets this message from God. He, gets, he goes down to Joppa. He gets a ticket, gets on a boat, and he goes the complete opposite direction. In fact, if you looked at a map and Jonah's here, Nineveh's here, Jonah goes that away. Like the opposite direction. He gets on a boat to a, a place called Tarshish. And he gets on the boat and it says that the, the sea became very tumultuous. It was a terrible storm. And there's a lot of interesting insight in the Hebrew and the way that the Hebrew spells out this story. So Sheol is a word you've probably heard and you've maybe acquainted it with hell. But Sheol in Hebrew has more of an idea of death. It's an idea of a passing. And so there's, Sheol was often used in conjunction or as a way of describing the seas. The seas by the, the people of this day, sailing was an extremely dangerous uh, venture. I mean, uh, the boats just did not have the technology that we have today. Uh, we didn't have navigation tools that we have today. Going on the open sea was a huge risk, and many, many men lost their lives at sea. And so the sea was often acquainted with death, and there's some parallels and some play on words in the Hebrew. The way that it's written by the Holy Spirit is just so beautiful and poetic. And there are parallels. So Jonah gets on the boat and says he goes down to the belly of the boat and he's fast asleep. And the sailors or the mariners are up on deck like, we're gonna die. They're throwing things off the, the side of the boat. They're trying to empty the weight. And it says in the text that the, the ship was on the verge of breaking up. Now, that would be a very terrifying situation. It says that the captain came down to the lower parts of the boat and he found Jonah fast asleep. Jonah's on the run from God. If you don't know, you can't run from the presence of God. He is uh, omniscient and omnipotent and he is everywhere all the time. You cannot run from the presence of God. And every time somebody tried to do that in the Bible, it usually went really poorly. And so Jonah's fast asleep. The captain comes down and says, dude, what are you doing We've tried our gods. This is literally the conversation. We've tried our gods. Can you cry out to yours? Because maybe he'll save us. So think about what's happening. Jonah receives a message from the Lord to go and take the message of, the, uh, of repentance and Yahweh to a group of Gentile pagans. He hates them so much that he runs the other direction and he ends up on a boat with a bunch of pagan sailors who end up giving their life to the Lord because Jonah says, he comes out, he sees the storm, he sees how bad things are. How he was sleeping, I have no idea. Uh, is anybody able to just sleep through anything? We got any deep sleepers in the room? Okay, I don't know how you guys do it. Uh, it's incredible to me. I have friends, and I was at the men's retreat yesterday, and I, I was sharing a room with a guy, and it was like one minute I was talking to him, and we're joking around, and I turn over, and he's sleeping. I'm like, I don't know, that's a spiritual gift I don't have. I, I take, it's a good hour and a half for me laying there staring at the ceiling. I don't know how you guys do it. So Jonah's fast asleep. The, he goes up, he sees the storm, and Jonah knows exactly what's going on. It's not like he doesn't know. And he tells them, this is because of me. And the Hebrew Messianic Jewish um, uh, rabbi I was listening to on this text, I thought it was really interesting, his insight from the Hebrew and stuff. He said that many read Jonah says, you know, you need to throw me overboard. So they cast lots. They fall on Jonah. Jonah says, yeah, this is my fault. And the only way to solve this is you're gonna have to throw me overboard. This was the insight from the rabbi I was listening to, that the sailors valued Jonah's life more than he did. Because somebody, some people will read that and say, oh, Jonah's so valiant, he's gonna give his life for the sake of saving these mariners. This is the rabbi's take on this. You can take it for what it is and chew on it. He believes that Jonah's trying to commit suicide so he doesn't have to take the message to the Ninevites. That's how much he hates them. And that's, that's actually what his take is, is that Jonah may have been actually just trying to off himself for the sake of not having to go to Nineveh and saying, just throw me into the sea and it'll stop. And they care more about Jonah's life than he does because it says after Jonah says that, they rode harder to try to get to land and they could not overcome the strength of the storm. So they resort to tossing Jonah overboard and they literally say, God, they call Yahweh by his name and, and recognize him as God of the sea and God of the universe. And they say, don't put his blood on our hands. 
They toss Jonah overboard. Storm stops. Can you imagine being that sailor who's been worshiping pagan gods your whole life, has never heard of the God of the Hebrews? Because Jonah says, I worship the God of the Hebrews, the God of heaven and earth. And they get more scared. And then he says, you got to throw me overboard for this to stop. They throw him overboard. And it says in an instant, the seas calmed. And it says that those sailors vowed to the Lord that they would serve him. So Jonah, in his effort to not let pagans hear the good news of, of God Almighty, ends up getting more pagans saved because that's what God does. And I think it's worth noting that God always works in spite of us. When I stand up here, when Pastor Michael stands up here, when the worship team stands up here, when any person stands up here and leads, when you share your faith, when you do anything good, it is because God is working in spite of you. In spite of your flaws and your mistakes and your sinfulness, he's working in spite of you. And it is always salvation by the Lord, from the Lord. Salvation is through Christ alone, through God alone. And so the sailors are saved. And now here's some interesting takes on this text in Jonah chapter 3. Well, before we get to chapter 3, Jonah ends up, it says the Lord fashioned a fish. I think that's really cool that it wasn't just a fish. It says the Lord fashioned a fish. Just like, well, I need a fish that can swallow a man. Boom. Fashions a fish, gets swallowed up. Jonah's in the belly of the whale. This is speaking prophetically of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Three days and three nights. And this rabbi I was listening to said, this is his perspective on the text. You take it for what it's worth. It's very human. And I, I lean towards this, I think. He said, I believe Jonah dies while he's in the, the fish. And the language in Jonah, and the reason is because of the language and the verbiage in Jonah's prayer. That he believes Jonah is resurrected and spat onto the beach. And the Lord says a second time, now go. So what did, what did we just see? The good news of the gospel comes to a group of people who are dead in their sin and pagans through a man who dies and is resurrected and sent with the good news. If that isn't a picture of Jesus. Now, Jonah is flawed. You got to remember, Jesus literally says our title today, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah had issues. Every prophet and every person who was supposed to represent Christ before Christ has issues because they're flawed, fallible men. But there is a picture that is clearly being painted in this text. And so it says in chapter 3 of Jonah, then the word of the Lord, verse one of chapter three of Jonah, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God says, okay, buddy, you want to run away again or you want, to, you want to do what I said? And he said, arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah arose and went to the city of Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly great, three days journey in Bredith, and Jonah began to go into the city going day, a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God and they called for a fast and they put sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The rabbi I was listening to said they wrapped their cattle in sackcloth. That's true repentance. Now, if you don't know, in Old Testament times and even in the New Testament, sackcloth was a sign of mourning and repentance before God. It was an itchy, uncomfortable fabric. And they were so willing to repent and so serious about their repentance that they wrapped their livestock in cattle. Cows are walking around mourning and in repentance. <laughs> I mean, these people were serious. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Jonah preach an eloquent, beautiful sermon? Uh, no, not even remotely close. Jonah half-heartedly stumbles into Nineveh just being in a fish and says, 40 days, y'all are toast. 40 days, y'all are toast. Better shape up. That's it. You know what I take away from that? All of us are evangelists. And I think every person in this room could share the gospel better than the prophet Jonah shared it with the people of Nineveh. And I would not recommend his tactics. I would not walk around your local supermarket. Y'all are going to burn. I wouldn't do that. May be effective for some. You may also have some enemies very quickly. 
And so God works in spite of Jonah's very weak, I mean, he was obedient, right? But like very reluctantly, and he did the bare minimum. And it's almost as if Jonah does the bare minimum in hopes that people will disregard him so they won't repent. Because when we get to the chapter, latter part of three and four, Jonah goes up on a hill and he waits for fire to fall. And it says that he couldn't find any shade and he's really distraught. Poor guy, can't find any shade. It's a hot day. As he waits for millions, hundreds of thousands of people to burn to death. And you can see what bitterness and what unforgiveness does in the heart of even godly men. And it says that Jonah finds this little bit of shade and then the Lord makes a worm and the worm eats the shade. And it's a whole thing. It's a whole saga for Jonah. He's just really having a hard day as he sits there and waits. And the desire for him wasn't there to see the people of Nineveh actually repent. It wasn't there. And yet, because salvation is of the Lord and in spite of any flawed man, the people repented. But I think it's interesting, you can turn back to Matthew, that there's this picture painted in the text that it's, it's possible, I like this take on it, we will never know for sure until we're with, we can ask Jonah one day, did you die in there? Because what a powerful picture of Christ's death and burial and resurrection that would be some thousands of years before Jesus even steps foot on the earth. And so now we jump back into our text in uh, Matthew 12, and it says, Jesus says, an adulterous and wicked generation asks for a sign, but this sign I give you, the sign of Jonah, and he says, I will be, just as uh, Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, some skeptics come to the text right here, and they say, aha, that's wrong, that's wrong. Jesus wasn't in the grave for three days and three nights. And, and then we get into these useless debates, and people are like, well, maybe Jesus, because we most likely what we can tell from our calendar, this is why we worship on the days we worship, and Easter is the day it is, and Good Friday, and all these things. We, we, our best estimation, according to our historical context that we have, is that Jesus was crucified on a Friday and rose on a Sunday morning. That's the best that we have based on our very thorough historical documents from the Bible. Just as a side note, I, I thought this was interesting. I heard this this week. Did you know there are over 26,000 supporting historical documents for the legitimacy of the Old Testament scriptures and New Testament scriptures? If you, so this is just a good side note for you to have in your back pocket when you're talking with people, because I've had this conversation with a lot of people. There's not enough evidence for the Bible. I'm like, really? Do you believe that the Declaration of Independence is a real document that's historically accurate? Because we have like one supporting document that shows that all those guys were in that room at the same time. Or Plato's writings, uh, Homer's Iliad, all those big historical documents that we hinge so much history on, you gotta throw them all out. Because I think for Homer's Iliad, we have like 200 supporting documents to show that it's legit. The Bible has over 26,000 outside extra biblical documents that show that its timeline is accurate, that the people it records, the kings and the rulers, are real people that actually existed. And the span of time between the earliest gospel, uh, fragments of the Gospel of John, it's like 150 years before we have a completed New Testament. It's pretty wild. That is unheard of. This, this word and this book has been tested to over, it, 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 you can't even capture how many times people have tried to disprove this book and it still stands true. Your faith is, is not just some whimsical pie in the sky thing. There is a lot of historical compelling evidence for the scriptures. And so just know that. That's a side note, but it should encourage you in your faith to know that you're not just, it, it, people always accuse me of this. I've had this, I've had this said to me many times as a Christian. You guys just believe in that stuff to make yourself feel better about death and the struggles in life. I can understand why the skeptic says that, but it's just not true. Because it is more logical to believe in an almighty creator and in this word as the authority of God than to believe that there's just, it's just chance that we're all here. It's way more logical. And um, I think it was, um, what's the guy, who, Lee Strobel. I think it was Lee Strobel who said it takes way more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian because the evidence is just too compelling. So as we look at our text, it's not a literal three days and three nights. The, the simple way to understand this, if, if people argue this as a discrepancy in the scripture, in the Hebrew language, this was a figure of speech. And so it could be equated to Jesus saying, in a very quick manner, 
or in a, in a short amount of time, I will rise from the dead. And that's it. It doesn't need to be overcomplicated. Sometimes we get into these debates on the side and it's just like not worth it. Uh, this is not something to like lose sleep over. Uh, and, and also it's worth noting that the, in Hebrew culture, they mark the beginning of a new day at sundown. So a lot of it is already there as far as the three days and three nights. Now we know Jesus is uh, buried Friday night, more than likely. Uh, he's in the grave all day Saturday and he rises again Sunday morning is our best estimation on how it worked out. And how the, all the details of the exact hours, was it an exact 72 hour period or not, doesn't matter. Because that's not what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is saying the greater picture is, I'm going to defeat sin and death. And that ought to be what we're focusing on when Jesus is talking about literally rising from the dead. Amen? So let's not get caught up in some of the little details. They're interesting to talk about, but they're certainly not worth um, throwing out a passage or something like that. This is a figure of speech. And anybody who speaks uh, Hebrew, many Jewish rabbis will tell you this is not a discrepancy. This is a figure of speech. And so verse 41 says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they, have rep they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And then he continues and says, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Thank God that, jo that Jonah was not Jesus. Because the way Jonah handled a lot of his duties from God was not great, right? Jonah handled it pretty much how you and me would handle it. It would have been a hot mess. And that's why the Messiah has to come and has to be the perfect spotless lamb who is utterly obedient. And I, we, were on the car, we were in the car on Friday driving up. I was driving up with some of the tech guys and um, we had a guy that was with us and he asked me a question and it was such a good conversation. He said, um, I was in a debate with a, a believer the other day or, or a non-believer the other day and he was asking me, how could Jesus live a, a sinless life, like even from childhood? And I said, well, the simple answer is that Jesus lived a life fully and completely surrendered to the will of his father. You want to live a life that's pure before the Lord? Be surrendered to the will of God. That's, that's actually, it's, Christianity is not that complicated. You want to live a joyful, not a happy life, but a joyful life that in spite of whatever you might be going through, you can have joy and peace in Christ. Be surrendered to the will of God and just be an obedient servant. Humble yourself. The scripture says he exalts those who humble themselves. He exalts the humble. And he humbles those who try to exalt themselves. So don't be that person. And so Jesus is basically saying the Ninevites repented and they had a much lesser light. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he compares to the queen of Sheba or the queen of the south. There's another Old Testament passage. She comes from far, here's the wisdom of Solomon, here's the goodness of God, and she repents and believes. And what Jesus is saying in a poetic way, the simple way of thinking of it is, Jesus is saying, you guys have received a far greater light as in himself, and you still refuse to believe. And so the Ninevites are going to condemn you in that sense because they received Jonah, and we just looked at Jonah, not an eloquent sermon. Jonah wasn't performing miracles. He brought a simple message, turn or burn, baby. And they repented. They didn't ask for a sign. They didn't ask for a miracle. The queen of Sheba didn't ask for signs or miracles. She heard the good news of God, the hope she could have in her creator, and she repented. And that's what Jesus is saying. These people put you guys to shame because they had far less light to hold on to, and they repented nonetheless. The Pharisees have the audacious claim, show us a sign? Are you kidding me? Let's just look at what's happened in the book of Matthew so far. And I know we've been in Matthew for like five years because we teach like four verses at a time. But just as a quick recap, and I think that's good, by the way, I'm not bashing it. Here's some things that have happened just in front of the Pharisees in this book or that they've been privy to. Jesus has healed the man with the withered hand. He's healed a paralytic. He raised a girl from the dead. He healed the woman with the flow of blood. He healed two blind men. He restored a demon-possessed man who was mute. He cleanses lepers. He calms the seas and storms. He casts out more demons. And there's more than that that Matthew probably didn't have time to record. 
There are passages in Matthew earlier on where it says Jesus was healing people by the thousands. And the Pharisees look at him in the face and say, show us a sign. (laughs) If I was Jesus, and thank God I'm not, I would have been like, come here. You want a sign? I'll show you a sign. (laughs) Are you kidding me? And, And we overestimate the power of miracles in people's life. What do you mean? Look at the nation of Israel. They were pulled out of captivity in Egypt. They watched all 10 plagues happen to just the Egyptians while they were spared. They crossed through the parted Red Sea on soggy land. No, on dry land. They enter into the wilderness. They're being led by the presence of God by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. They see the presence of God encamped above the people on Mount Sinai. And they literally heard a voice from heaven. And Moses goes up Mount Sinai and comes back a couple days later. And they have taken all their jewelry off, fashioned it into a stupid cow, and they're worshiping it. And they're saying, hear this, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. As they point at the calf that Aaron made. Are you kidding me? If you were Moses and you came down, you were just in the presence of God Almighty. Sorry, I'll calm down. It gets me fired up. Can you imagine? You come down the mountain. You've just been in the presence of Almighty God. And Moses is like, he's got the Ten Commandments. He's doing good. He comes down the And it says in the text in Exodus, Moses heard a sound from far off. Some of you have children and you can relate to this situation. You're like, what did I just hear? (laughs) And as you get closer, the chaos exudes. Moses gets closer. It says he got within earshot and within the ability to see. And he saw the people worshiping a golden calf and proclaiming, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And it says that he smashed the tablets If I was Moses, I'd have been like, okay, you know what? I tried. I tried. You saw. I'm just going to go back up there and hang out with you, and you can do whatever you want to do with them. My brother included. He's a moron. I don't know what he's doing. (laughs) How? And we look at the nation of Israel, and we say, how could they do that? But we do that. We do that. Idolatry corrupts our hearts, and we we are created to worship. Have you noticed because the people who say that they don't worship and they don't believe in organized religion, I don't talk, I had a guy at the store one time, he said, I don't talk about politics, I don't talk about religion, I don't talk about, uh, he named a couple other things, I was like, what do you talk about exactly? He said, I don't like talking to anybody. I said, okay, fair enough. Have you heard about Jesus? Uh, so he, I just can't even fathom the way that Moses probably felt when he comes down, but we do the same thing. We are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. And we will fashion a God in our own image. And for some people, it's, it's their money, it's their cars, their possessions, their materialistic. For some people, it's relationships that take precedent over their relationship with Christ. For some people, it's their kids and their kids are extracurriculars and sporting events and whatever. And I'll tell you what, there's football games on Sundays and there's thousands of people packed into a stadium who are literally losing their minds over a bunch of sweaty dudes tackling each other. And we come into church and the God of the universe promises that he will commune with us and that he's in our midst. And the song ends and we're like... Yikes. We are prone to wander, prone to idolatry, We hear the good news of the gospel and we get more excited about our team scoring a touchdown. Now look, I'll be the first person to admit when the Dodgers won the World Series a couple years ago, I've been waiting my whole life for that. I was very happy. But those things are not more important and more more impactful than this. Come on. And I shared with you some of the sad statistics of where our church is at. And so we can look at miracles and say, well, if God would just do this thing for this person, maybe they'll believe. Well, maybe. There are times in the scriptures where we see miracles compelled people. But I will tell you that if a heart is hardened by pride, no miracle will change that heart. 
Pharaoh watched the 10 plagues happen and his heart remained hard. And even when he said, take them, take the people, he changed his mind and went after them. And he lost a lot of his army in the sea. And that is what a heart hardened by pride and arrogance looks like. And it's easy to identify in other people. Pastor Michael said this last night when he was teaching at the retreat, and it's so true. Our sins always look much worse when other people are doing them. Right? And so you talk to people who maybe have idolatrous tendencies. There's other things that are taking precedent. And it's easy to identify, but the question has to be asked back at us, well, what are the idols in my life? And we ask God to do this and that. Friend, the cross was more than enough. We didn't deserve the cross, and Jesus went to the cross and paid the price for us, washed us with his blood. And then after that, Jesus ascends into heaven, and before he leaves, he says, I'm gonna give you my Holy Spirit to be a guide and a help to you. And then he provides for us and he blesses us. The Psalms and the scriptures are full of the idea that God desires and loves to bless his children. God loves to bless you. Have you ever thought about that? That your heavenly father loves to bless you. Now that doesn't mean that you're gonna be rich and wealthy and always good. Because that word faith movement, my, my dad, Pastor Michael, has shared this a few times. We've heard stories of pastors who teach the health and wealth gospel and then their wife is diagnosed with cancer and dying in a hospital bed and they're hiding it from their congregation because if they tell their congregation that their wife is, is physically sick and dying, it uproots all of their prosperity gospel theology. And so pride hardens their heart and instead of repenting and saying, you know what, I might have this wrong. Maybe Christians do suffer. They harden their heart and in their pride, they'll let their loved one pass away without anybody praying. What if the church knew and started praying and interceding? And so we have to be on guard against pride. Jesus had already more than proved who he was. And ultimately, this passage is pointing to something greater because Jesus came and how all the old prophets of the Old Testament failed to represent Christ David, a man after God's own heart, literally slept with a woman who wasn't his wife, got her pregnant, brought in the husband and tried to manipulate him to make him think that it was his kid. When it didn't work, he had him murdered on the battlefield and then he tried to cover it up. That's the guy that the scripture, the only guy in scripture that says he was a man after God's own heart. Every person who was representative of Jesus Christ, the Messiah who would come, failed in one way or another. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and he lives the perfect life and he's the perfect spotless lamb. All of the sacrificing that's happening in the Old Testament is pointing to this sacrifice that would come. The veil will be torn. He will rise from the grave. There will be no more need for the high priest to be sacrificing on behalf of the people because the perfect spotless lamb has already come and he has conquered sin and death. Something greater has come. And so why does Jesus respond the way that he does when they ask for a sign? Because of their unbelief and their pride that separated them from being able to see who Jesus was. As the worship team comes out, we're gonna take communion. Ushers, you can begin to pass it out. I think it's very appropriate that today is a communion Sunday because we've looked at a passage that's Jesus prophesying of his death and his resurrection. And as we look at this text, it's convicting. It's been convicting for me this week as I've thought about it because I know the areas in my life where I struggle to trust God in spite of the fact that he's proven himself to be faithful. I wanna share a quick story. My wife and I just moved. Um, I don't tell you this for your pity. I just, I, I'm sharing something that God has done in our life just even recently on these, in this way. Uh, we just moved to a new home, and um, moving is awful. I don't recommend it. Um, and uh, my wife has recently resigned from her job. We both, through much prayer and seeking counsel, decided that we wanted her to be home with the kids. And losing about half of our income every month in Southern California as a young couple is not ideal. 
And um, we have felt that the Lord is calling us to walk by faith and not by sight, and that it's more important that my wife is home with our kids. And I wholeheartedly stand by that and believe that. But it presents some very practical challenges for us, obviously. And many of you can relate to this. Because as far as I know, most of us in the room probably aren't millionaires. And we had a moment. We spent some money fixing up the place that we moved into. And we kind of tapped ourselves out a little bit. And we were both kind of like, oh boy. Like some bills popped up that we forgot about. And we're driving uh, home one evening and my wife's kind of venting to me like, I don't know how we're gonna do this. Like, this just doesn't seem like it's gonna work and I'm, I'm, I'm more of a quiet worrier, but I'm also thinking internally like, yeah, I mean, I don't know how it's gonna work either. And uh, we're just like in that moment, uh, in that mind, in that uh, frame of mind, right? And all of us have probably been there many times where you're like, I don't know how we're gonna do this. And the kids are screaming in the backseat, losing their minds and you're like, I really don't know how we're gonna do this. And... We get home, and my wife's disability hadn't been approved yet for her maternity leave. We were still kind of like, is it, is it approved? The government is obviously super efficient at everything, so um, we had no idea if it had been approved. We were checking the website and couldn't tell, and we get home, and we're like, well, we'll see what happens, and I get the mail, and there's the first check for her maternity leave, and I'm like, <laughs> I just kind of chuckled. I walked in the house and set it on the counter and she kind of laughed too and was like, wow. And that has happened in our life more times than I have time to tell you about where we've been like, I don't know how we're gonna do this and then the Lord makes a way. And it's way more than just financial stuff. That's a real thing. But Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount earlier in Matthew, which of you by worrying can add even a single moment to your life? And so Jesus is just foretold of his death and his resurrection. And that's where the hope lies, is that he didn't stay in the grave. And for some of this, this may be a repeating of elementary Christian principles, but I don't know where everybody's at in this room this morning. You can have a hope that goes beyond the trials of this life because Jesus foretold of his death and then lived it out and actually did it. You know how you can tell if a prophet is a legit prophet? When what they say comes to pass. Jesus foretold of his death and burial and resurrection, and it's all throughout the, test, the New and Old Testament, and then he did it. Jesus came to his own. His own did not receive him. They crucified him, and then he conquered sin and death to save the very people that put him on the cross. If that is not love, I don't know what it is. Jesus is the perfect spotless lamb, and something greater came than the prophets who failed before him. And that's what Jesus is saying. You want a sign? I'm going to redeem all mankind by the shedding of my blood and by conquering the grave. So let's take communion together right now as we're on that topic. We're going to see this soon in our text as we continue through Jesus' ministry. But it says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And so for us in the church today, right now, that's why we continue to take communion. Communion is for those who have professed Christ as their Lord and Savior. It is not for non-believers. But if you wanna know Jesus, you can know him right now. And it's not through some magical prayer that I can lead you in. It's, it's you genuinely repenting in your heart and saying, Lord, I need you. And so together we take the bread as a way of remembering his body that was broken for us. And then it says, in the same manner, he took the cup in the new covenant. And he said, this is my blood that's poured out for you. And so as often as you drink it, remember, remember me. And so as we take this together, we remember the blood that covers our sin and makes us clean that was poured out for us. Take it together. Father, thank you for your great love, for the fact that you have paid for our sins, that they've been paid in full. Lord, we look at this text today and we see the attitude and the posture of the heart of the Pharisees and maybe some of us are, we feel like we're looking in a mirror. 
We've doubted you time and time again, though you've proven your faithfulness. And so if that's us, Lord, and and Lord, forgive me, I repent publicly of the times that I've doubted you, even recently, when you've proven yourself to be faithful, would you embolden us as your children with faith? Thank you that when we are weak, you are strong. And thank you that you never leave us, you never forsake us. And because of your atonement on the cross, we have new life. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We worship you, Lord. We now are obedient to your command to sing your praises publicly. And we're gonna stay right here in this place for a moment and worship you through music and sing how deep the Father's love for us. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice among the scoffers. Lord, the sins in our life that we may minimize and belittle and sweep under the rug are the sins that put you on the cross. And so we repent of those things and I pray that today would be a day for many in this room where they would take a deep breath acknowledge their sin, repent of it, and begin walking in freedom. How deep the Father's love for us. We worship you, Lord. Let's stand together and sing.